but they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. I got baptized at uh, Lake Minnetonka. Uh, I hit a couple backflips. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. My swag was having no swag. Hello, everyone, and welcome into another installment here of the Minnesota Sports Podcast on the 11th of November. Happy Veterans Day. And we are diving in to talk all the latest in Minnesota sports. And with the Vikings playing the Chargers this com- upcoming week, we brought somebody who's a uh, who's a double agent here, uh, Ian Rivers, a Chargers and Vikings fan. Ian, how's it going? Thanks for joining the podcast. I'm doing good. Looking forward to this big game this weekend. Uh, always, always happy to be on the pod. So, talk. What are your thoughts about this uh, about this upcoming game here with the Vikings taking on the Chargers from a neutral fan or about as neutral as you can get? What is your uh, What are your takes on this game? What are you looking to see? Uh, well, I'm looking to see if the Vikings game plan. You know, and this is a game uh, that the Vikings game plan, at least the one that we've seen currently, where the, the heavy run might actually work in their favor. The Chargers defense, in terms of run defense, is absolutely atrocious. Um, they just made Boston Scott and Jordan Howard look like they were Barry Sanders and Walter Payton in the same backfield this last week against the Eagles. But uh, I'm looking to see uh, these two offenses. Well, it's tough because you, you want to watch the game and watch the Vikings offense, but they've really kind of held back themselves in terms of the play calling and some of that that we've seen. And if you live in Minnesota, you've probably heard some of the the grumblings about Clint Kubiak, but uh, I was looking forward to seeing these offenses sling the ball against each other. Uh, I think it'll be a high-scoring game, uh, somewhere in the 20s, if not the 30s, uh, because the Chargers offense can really move in when their play calling is clicking. Um, and the Vikings offense can do the same thing, and neither defense plays well to the strength of the other offense. The Chargers struggle against the run. The Vikings, their secondary's been better, but I still don't know if they can contain uh, Keenan Allen and Mike Williams to the best of the abilities. Yeah, and, and like you said, aggressiveness is going to be the biggest thing. What do the Vikings do coming into uh, coming into this week? Because like you said, the Chargers, a little bit more prone on the run defensive side of things to be a game where, you know, the Vikings might, I mean, they're going to try and give it to Dalvin. They're going to try and give it to Madison, well, mainly Dalvin, as much as they can. But it's going to make some people in the fan base, they want the passes, they've been calling for the passes, and especially in a game with Justin Herbert, you're going to need to score points. And so I guess you're just trying to say, expect a lot of runs, and it might not actually be a bad thing this week. Yeah, the play calling might actually look competent this week because it's pretty easy to figure out. Uh, how to attack the the Chargers. And I haven't looked at the Chargers injury report this week, but last week both of their top corners, Michael Davis and Asante Samuel, were out against the Eagles. So they couldn't stop a whole lot of anything that the Eagles threw at them. Uh, Because when you get the aging Chris Harris Jr. playing on Devontae Smith, Devontae Smith is going to make him look like he's 10 years older than he even is. So it was a tough game defensively last week. The Chargers found a way to pull it out. Uh, but yeah, I think the Vikings, if they lean heavy on Dalvin Cook and they can creatively find ways to get him the ball, they should be just fine. Unless the Chargers found a way to game plan better for just teams running it straight up the middle and getting six, seven yards easy 
And so one thing on the defensive side of the ball I want to talk about with the Chargers is, you know, they have Bosa and they have, uh, you know, outside of the run defense, they, you know, they have some guys that can play and they have some pass rushers. And just talk a little bit about how that is and how, because Christian Derrissaw to this point has, I think, only given up one sack so far in his career, has played very, you know, hasn't played exceptionally well, but has definitely held his own as a rookie in his first handful of starts. And of course, Brian O'Neill is one of the better right tackles in the game. So how do you think the Vikings tackles square up to the edge rushers of the Chargers? I think they square up uh, pretty well against the Chargers pass rushers. Uh, obviously, Joey Bosa is a is somebody that's tough to contain um, for any uh, tackle in the league. But um, the Vikings, if they've done one thing well this year, it's, you know, even if the play calling hasn't been the greatest, something that it's done is it gets the ball out of Cousins' hands a lot quicker. Cousins is low on interception rate. He hasn't fumbled the ball this year, and he's, I think, one of the least sacked quarterbacks in the NFL this season. So um, something that, that's really uh, benefited that is getting the ball out of his hands so quickly, and I've seen teams game plan around, you know, playing against Joey Bosa uh, and, and Kyrie, uh, the outside rushers of uh, and Wosu and Kyler Fackrow as well. It, the Vikings should be set up pretty well based off of how they've game plan so far. Let's just get the ball to Cousins' hands quickly. But on the other hand, that does limit your downfield threat of Justin Jefferson. Well, what downfield? The Vikings don't need to throw the ball downfield. I mean, who's Justin Jefferson, by the way? Yeah, I haven't. You know, outside of one maybe big play, I don't think I've seen enough of him. We probably should give the ball to Tyler Conklin more than we give the ball to him. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's one thing that's been very frustrating. So it's a give and take because, you know, you're turning the ball over less, um, but you're struggling to push the plays downfield and get those big home run balls that you um, have really been lacking this year. Uh, so I think that they'll probably stick to the same game plan. We, we haven't seen them stray from it so far this year. And I think it might work out better for them this week if they do stick to that. Get the ball out quick. Don't risk getting sacked by uh, the edge rushers of the Chargers, and it should work out pretty well. The Chargers have been pretty good at forcing turnovers this year, uh, but that's mostly when their secondary is fully healthy. Um, so we'll see what the injury report looks like coming up tomorrow, and that'll probably tell us a lot more about the health of Michael Davis and Sondes. Yeah, and, and I bring that up because I think in the last game, I think it was like Tyler Conklin got 14 targets and Justin Jefferson got 10. And in no world should that ever be the case, where you're targeting Justin Jefferson, or we're targeting Tyler Conklin more than Justin Jefferson. And I'm not even putting that on Kirk Cousins, because Kirk, we've talked about this before, whether it was on our old radio show, whether it's on this podcast. Kirk Cousins is a guy who sticks to the script. So he's a guy who's not going to kind of play hero ball and do his own thing. He's going to follow the recipe. He's going to follow the instructions put in front of him. And that all goes to the offensive coordinator that goes even further to the head coach. And I guess I want to know your stance. Are you on the fire Kubiak train or are you uh, still just kind of on the fire Zimmer train? Kind of where are you on all this? You know, do you think both of them need to be cleaned out immediately or what's your stance? You know, I think the one that's got to go is Mike Zimmer. He clearly has a very, very big, I'll call it a stranglehold over the offensive play callers because how many play callers have we been through in the last five, six years besides Shermer that really have been crippled by the same thing? Really, since Shermer left, 
every play caller, we've complained about the same thing, and at the end of the year, they're gone. Uh, now, granted, we had uh, Gary Kubiak last year, right, and he stepped away just because he was retiring um, or whatever. But at, at the end of the day, it's the same thing. I think Mike Zimmer has way too much influence over how he wants to play, and that, that cripples the offensive play caller's creativity. Now, it might be somewhat on Kubiak, too. Um, but again, I mean, Cousins has not had a play caller that stayed the same now, granted, he's a veteran quarterback. It's not like he's a, a rookie that keeps changing play callers every year. Uh, so he should be able to handle it a little bit better than somebody who's 24 years old would handle it. But still, it doesn't help your offenses flow from year to year when you're changing play callers every year. Um, but ultimately, for reasons more than just the play calling, I do think Zimmer uh, probably needs to be the first to go. Yeah, and and honestly, I don't I don't get the I mean I understand why the hate for Kubiak, but I honestly think Kubiak is just kind of a stand-in for Mike Zimmer, but he's really more just on the offensive side of things. But people act like uh, Clint Kubiak, who has whose dad has a good relationship with the head coach, is going to just all of a sudden go scorched earth and go bleep it. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to do this and that. Like Gary Ku- or Clint Kubiak is going to. He's going to take the lumps, and if they all get fired and he has to go find another job, he's going to basically just say, I was strangle-held by my head coach. Give me another chance. You know, I can you know, I can really have a better shot. And I've, I've been saying it all year. I said there are going to be ups and downs with having a rookie play caller, somebody who's never called plays before, somebody who's never been an offensive coordinator before. Yeah, there's going to be some bumps along the way, and you got to figure these things out. But I think it just all comes to the lack of aggressiveness, the lack of, you know, just being able to be creative, I think that falls on the head coach's shoulders by limiting what he wants the offense to do. I guarantee you, you could give Clint Kubiak a marker and a whiteboard and all summer, and he could drop some very creative plays for Justin Jefferson, Adam Thielen, you know, when Irv Smith is in the mix, Dalvin Cook, and most, nine out of ten offensive coordinators could. But when your head coach is saying, run up the middle, run up the middle, check down to the tight end in the flat, I mean, not a lot of offensive coordinators are going to do that. And like you said, you know, uh, Mike Zimmer's had a new play caller every every year since 2017. It was, you know, Shermer into De Filippo into Stefanski into Kubiak into you know Clint Kubiak and and yeah, it just it doesn't bode well because Mike Zimmer and we saw this with De Filippo likes to really control things, especially when he feels like he has a handle. With Filippo, he felt like he was at odds because Filippo was very, you know, pass first, was very RPO, all this kind of new age offensive stuff. Zimmer didn't buy it. He didn't really like it. Kevin Stefanski took over his play caller. He was a little more reserved, had Gary Kubiak in the building. And also Stefanski was in the building for longer than Zimmer had been. So Zimmer couldn't really challenge him without getting some pushback from people inside the building. And now he's kind of has that strangle on Clint Kubiak, and you just see it working out. I, you know, I don't think Clint Kubiak has been great, but I'm saying that Zimmer deserves more of the blame. And on top of that, firing both of them or either of them at this point is just going to be moot because everything is already installed. We're halfway through the year. If you bring in, if you fire Clint Kubiak, and I don't even know who you promote as offensive coordinator after that point, the plays are still the same, and the head coach dictating what plays he wants are still going to be the same. Exactly. And that's what I say. I think Zimmer has too much control, or he's had too much control over the offensive side of the ball. He wants to play like it's the 1960s, and like their quarterbacks are not capable of throwing the ball more than 30 yards down the field. 
Um, and, and he just wants to ground and pound. And obviously, when you have Dalvin Cook, that's a, not a terrible idea. Uh, but you got to have some creativity in there as well uh, to be able to keep up with the opposing offenses. Yeah, and and another thing too with with the uh, Mike Zimmer thing is it's not with his offensive philosophy. It wasn't bad to have that offensive philosophy in 2017 when you had a defense that if they won the Super Bowl probably is considered on the same level as like the 2015 Broncos, 2000 Ravens, 1985 Bears, like that level of good if you win the Super Bowl, that works out. Even in 2019, your defense was gaining a lot of turnovers, was being very effective in the red zone and on third downs and all that kind of key areas. And then it it works in a way. But Zimmer is trying to operate his team as if his defense is still good. And that I think has been the biggest issue. But speaking of the defense now, just talk a little bit about, we'll get back on the, uh, ju- and the chargers train here. Since you've been following Justin Herbert all year, talk about what you think Justin Herbert has uh, regressed in advanced in, in his second year in the league and what the Vikings need to do to slow him down. Well, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know how much he's actually regressed in. Um, there's going to be points. He's, he's probably thrown, I think seven interceptions, maybe six this year. Um, so that's probably on pace with the 10 he had last year. Um, but what he's doing really well right now is I feel like every game he gets more intelligent as a quarterback. He's learning uh, his his bad plays. He uses them as a uh, learning experience, and, and he, gets, he gets him smarter. Uh, and something that does frustrate me is the play calling for the Chargers has been a little bit weird over these last couple of games as well. Uh, it's been a little scared. They're throwing to the tight ends a lot. They're running it more on first down than they had been. Um, and that's kind of getting back to what we saw last year out of them. Uh, but Justin Herbert is is really being smart with his decision-making. He still has a major arm. Uh, but one thing he really does well is he doesn't feel like he has to use it on every play. When he needs his cannon of an arm, he'll use it. They'll fit a ball into a tight window. He'll throw it deep downfield to Mike Williams and Jalen Guyton. Um, but he picks and chooses his spots. When you see guys with big arms like Trevor Lawrence, Trevor Lawrence so far is, is just, yeah, I've got an arm. I'm going to use it every throw. Every throw I make is going to go as hard as I can. Um, and that's something I think Justin Herbert does really well is picks and chooses his spots. Um, and he's a pretty good decision maker. So uh, most of the interceptions this year, uh, the two at least against the, the um, Patriots, uh, Austin Eckler had it just go right through his hands uh, off of his, off both of them. And then the second one, the pick six, Jared Cook just didn't even turn and look for the ball. Um, so uh, quarterback interceptions are a little bit of a weird stat like that. Sometimes it's really not on the quarterback. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be tough. Um, every time he's gone up against a, a good defensive signal caller, though, he has struggled. We saw it last year against the Patriots in the 45 nothing loss. This year against the Patriots, probably his worst game of the year outside of the Baltimore game, which, again, um, Harbaugh knows what he's doing defensively, and they, they're pretty smart offensively, too. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think Zimmer, if he can concoct a pretty good game plan to get Justin Herbert off of his pace uh, from the get-go, that's going to be the best chance he has. And, like you said, is developing a good game plan. It looked like Zimmer, for the most part on defense, had a decent enough plan to stop Lamar. Now a couple of good turnovers, a couple kind of fluky uh, in terms of like Anthony Barr just destroying Devonta Freeman and, you know, tipping up his own interception. 
you know, inter- we talked about it before on the podcast. Interceptions can be kind of fluky. Sometimes it's just a weird thing happens. But I think with the with the Vikings, Zimmer's always been able in his entire coaching career, no matter what's happened through the Adrian Peterson stuff, through the Teddy Knee stuff, through his eye, through the cutting the heads off of stuffed animals, through the quarter cornerback mutiny, through you know 2018, through all of the you know all the stuff that Zimmer has gone through. Uh, he usually gets his guys to come out and to play the following weekend, especially after a tough loss. And with everything going on this week that you know everybody's heard about by now, which is you know the twenty, the twenty nine players or coaches and so that had to be contact traced and tested because of a small outbreak in the Vikings facility, Dakota Dozier being hospitalized with COVID and pneumonia, and. Now the Delvin Cook stuff, which he's being accused of domestic assault, and he's also accusing the woman of assault and extortion. I mean, there's just all of this kind of stuff going around with Mike Zimmer and just his team and and the wheels just falling off and the team not being good and underperforming and on the hot seat and everything going on. Do you think it's possible for the Vikings to not to come into this game firing on all cylinders? Or do you think that at this point it's just a matter of time before the wheels fall off and the bus engine starts on fire? I'm not going to lie to you. I think it's a little bit more of the latter. Um, and it sucks because I think we're right on the edge um, of the the window where we're kind of – we've got enough talent. But it, I think Mike Zimmer might have, like, lost his locker room or something. Uh, I saw a video, and the guy was explaining, like, uh, there was a stiff arm that Dalvin Cook had against the – the Cowboys right in front of the Vikings bench and it looked like something Derrick Henry would do and he um, <clears throat> the Vikings bench just didn't even react at all it was a, a great play by Cook ended up turning a three yard loss into a three or four yard gain and it's just nobody seemed excited I, I don't know what it is this team has lost a lot of close games this year um, and they're probably a little bit deflated now you add in all this COVID stuff and the Dalvin Cook noise. I'm hoping, as a Vikings fan, that Mike Zimmer can gather this locker room and say, hey, you know all this is happening, but today is Sunday. Today, we don't focus on any of that. We go there and play football. You would think that would be easy enough, but sometimes uh, teams can struggle to put that noise behind them. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. It's kind of that sink or swim approach with certain teams. Like, you look at the Raiders earlier this season, they had the old John Gruden mess, and then they come out and they win their next game, and the team kind of rallies together. But then this game, after they had the Henry Ruggs situation and just the horrible stuff that happened in that, they came out flat and lost to, uh, I, I can't remember what team they ended up losing to, but it was the Giants. Yeah, so a two-win Giants team, they were 2-6. and six. And it's things like that where the, clearly the stuff had gotten to them. Like now, obviously, Henry Ruggs situation is far you know, is somebody died in that situation. So there's a lot more of just everybody and a guy is going to jail and it's just like his career is over and all that kind of stuff. And just that does mess with the team. That messes how you prepare, obviously. And the Vikings are in a similar situation where they're dealing with the Dalvin Cook stuff where Dalvin is, since it's a civil complaint, there's no criminal charges. The NFL and the Vikings can investigate and they can do whatever they want. But Dalvin Cook can still play. And Mike Zimmer basically kind of brushed off like, yeah, uh, nobody said anything otherwise, so we're just going to go business as usual. And 
Maybe that's the approach. Maybe Zimmer tells him business as usual. You know, maybe he uses this as our backs are against the wall, us against the world kind of thing. I think the Vikings either come out and they have they play the game of their lives and they come out determined, or the wheels fall off on the bus again in about the fourth quarter after the flaws come to light. And like you said, I think it's more of the second one. And that's just the thing is, when does Mike Zimmer lose this locker room if he hasn't already? And I think when Zimmer officially loses the locker room, is the point where you have to just call things. Zimmer's lost the locker room before in seasons. He lost the locker room in 2016, famously, when there was that cornerback mutiny. He was able to get it back. He was able to kind of come back the next year and learn from it and figure out. But these are issues with Zimmer, with play calling, and with just how he approaches his team. Things that he's not going to get over. He is who he is at this point, for better or worse. And I think Zimmer on other teams... I don't think he's a bad head coach. I think if he goes to another team, he could be a successful head coach. I just think his time in Minnesota is over. I think, like you said, it's a matter of time before he does lose the locker room. And if we're not careful, if the Vikings lose this game, and then they have to play Green Bay at home, it just, for whatever reason, it gives me 2011 vibes where your team vastly underperformed and your head coach is on the hot seat and Green Bay rolls into town and just curb stomps you in front of your own fans and you have no choice but to fire the head coach. And especially if Aaron Rodgers, if that's his first game back is against the Vikings, he's going to be dang well motivated to have a bleep you game. So everything just looks like it's going against the Vikings at this point. I think it's only a matter of time before Zim loses the locker room, but I think he does stay until the end of the season. Yeah, I mean, at this point, unless he planned on promoting somebody from the inside, um, I think he probably does end up staying until the end of the year. And like you said, and this is a big game for the Vikings because they're still right there, three and five. Uh, the next team, the Atlanta Falcons, are the seventh seed right now, four and four. So the Vikings are a game and a half or a game, half game. I don't even know what it converts to, but they're right there. If they win and Atlanta loses this week, they're both four and five, and they're right there in the mix of things, just right again. So, and and with the schedule getting easier, you know. Uh, after the Green Bay game a little bit. Obviously, it can't get much harder than the games that we've played the last couple of weeks. Well, again, we got that, that Dallas game might end up going back to haunt us again this year. Um, losing to a backup Cooper Rush, that might be, at the end of the day, I mean, these teams in the AFC, or in the NFC, man, none of them look like they even want the seventh seed right now. Um, the fact that Atlanta is the seventh seed, it, there's there's room there. The Vikings can take advantage of this, but they've got to get it clicking. They've got to get back on the right track. Um, and it can start right here against the Chargers because you know the Chargers are a good team. They're they're I think pretty decently coached, um, and they've got a heck of a quarterback. But at the end of the day, their defense, the Vikings' strong suit, plays right into their weakness. Well, yeah, and and another thing you mentioned too is trying to get into the playoffs, and they can, like you said, there is room to run with how weak the bottom tier NFC is and you know relying on the Atlanta Falcons to not choke away anything is going to be interesting and keep in mind too the New Orleans Saints are playing Trevor Simeon at quarterback and are going to be for a long time so the Saints could easily fall out of things and you look at with how weak the NFC is the Saints defense seems to be too good so even if they end up, I think worst case scenario for them is probably like nine and eight, and I think that's going to be plenty, uh, especially with how good their defense is. Because that game, like Simeon played outstanding against the Bucks, and if he could just game manage, like the Vikings have kind of wanted a quarterback to do.
do with a good defense. Uh, if he can game manage, I think the Saints will be fine. I don't think they're going to like win a playoff game, maybe, but I, I, I doubt it. Um, but I think with how weak the NFC is, that defense will probably be good enough. But yeah, there's, there's, they're, like you said, they're not unbeatable. And if they get a couple defensive injuries, it could derail them. So yeah, Mike is a great. Well, and I think too, Zimmer's best case scenario is look, if I can just make the playoffs, and that was the case last year. And he didn't even have to make the playoffs to get his job safe. If I can just keep us in the playoff hunt by like mid-December, and then I can go back and say, we lost Daniel Hunter. Uh, look at all this stuff we had to deal with. Look at all the, you know, this, uh, here's X, Y, and Z that I had to deal with. Let's give it another shot. And let's give me, you know, another year and a, to get a couple defensive picks in here. Let's keep this going. You know, may, maybe, you know, you can make Clint Kubiak the scapegoat. You know, and say we'll fire him, or we'll mutually agree to part ways, so it's less embarrassing, and and we'll figure something out. And you know, that's his best case scenario. And honestly, weird enough, I could see a team going eight and nine, even seven and ten, and making that seven seed because, like you said, nobody wants it, and nobody wanted the seven seed last year. By the way, Chicago earned it by default, and it got Mitch Trubisky as the MVP. So I, I don't really, uh, I don't really buy this seven seed. I never liked the idea because honestly there's not that many teams who really should be in the playoffs. You get to that NBA scenario where you find like an eight seed and you're like, yeah, they're in the playoffs, but they have no business being here. They're not considered to be in the, the best of what the other, what the league has to offer. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's rare occasions. I think the first season, who was the seventh seed in the AFC last year? I think it was the Colts. Um, yeah, they were. And the Colts, I think were, were, were a playoff team. They were good enough and they went right down to the, to the, I almost said buzzer, but you know, right down to the wire with with the Bills in that two seven matchup. Obviously, the the Bears. I mean, the NFC was a little bit weaker in the middle of the pack last year. Uh, but even like right now, look at the the Colts have been playing pretty good football lately. Now, granted, they just beat the Jets, so I'm not saying that, but they look pretty good a couple weeks ago against the Niners. Maybe the Niners aren't that good, but the Colts right now are the 12 seed in the AFC. Denver, Cincinnati, Cleveland, and the Kansas City Chiefs are all on the outside looking in and are all five and four. Granted, I don't think Denver's really that good. Um, but Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Kansas City, even with a bad defense, I still think Kansas City's a playoff team. So, so most years, I think the seventh seed is probably at least going to be able to put up revenue in terms of a good game. And that's what the NFL probably wanted by adding a playoff team. It's just an extra two games on wildcard weekend to televise. But at the end of the day, I do think the Vikings could make it in. Um, but I'll play devil's advocate here uh, for what you're arguing for Zimmer and say, well, what about at the beginning of the year? Like you lost two straight close games, very winnable games to the Bengals. Now, granted, maybe you got a little bit unlucky with the Dalvin Cook. He probably should have been called down. But you're still – there's – Plenty of other things you could have done to make that game winnable without having to have that, you know, call. Uh, and then the missed field goal against the Cardinals. Granted, Zimmer doesn't control Greg Joseph's legs, so I guess he could argue that. But there's still plenty that happened in the beginning of the year that makes me think, well, yeah, Daniel Hunter got hurt, but what about the the close losses and even the sketchy wins against Carolina and Detroit where, where you very easily could have lost both of those games and you shouldn't have. Like, it, to me, man, I don't know. Zimmer's going to have a tough time defending himself if he can't work his way into the playoffs. 
Well, even like you said with Arizona, even you don't even go to the end of the game situation. The end of that first half, everybody kind of forgets where Zimmer's defense died on itself, like or folded in on itself like a dying star, and let Ronald Moore like run for like 80 yards and get in the end zone and basically let the Cardinals go down the field in 20 seconds without a timeout and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's things like that that I think are going to bury Zimmer officially. But before we move on to hockey here, I want to uh, ask you one quick question. What reunion are you looking forward to more, Cam Newton in Carolina or Odell Beckham Jr. in what little spotlight he has left? Um, well, I think Odell, I mean, the Odell thing seems kind of dumb to me. It seems like the whole time he was probably just ring chasing. And he didn't really care about targets because how are you going to go from Cleveland and complain that you're not getting enough targets in Cleveland and then go to a team with Cooper Cup, Robert Woods, uh, Daryl Henderson, Van Jefferson, and Tyler Igby, all of which Stafford likes to spread the ball around to. Obviously, Cup more than the others, but I don't know. Um, so <laughs> I think Beckham, it, it, it'll be good. He, he's going to have probably more success than he did in Cleveland, but he would have had more target shares in New Orleans or uh, Kansas City or something like that. Um, but I, I'm really excited to see the Cam Newton to Carolina thing because I think Cam, man, I really fell off that Sam Darnold wagon hard. I was like, okay, Sam, I think he's he's a really good, he's not a really good quarterback, but he's a good quarterback. Like he's a Cousins level quarterback when he is on a team that has a decent O-line and decent enough weapons. Um, and then, Man, this last month and a half, he's just looked awful. I literally, I think he, he is the worst starting quarterback in the NFL. When uh, he, obviously, like Tyrod Taylor isn't healthy, um, but like what well, he is now, I, I think he's number thirty-two. Man, he's worse than Ben Roethlisberger. So I'm excited to see what Cam can do. Um, if he can save this Panthers season, that's going to be something to watch out for too. Because the Panthers are four and five; they're right for the Vikings. Um, we have the head-to-head over that, which is big. Um, but if Cam can turn that dumpster fire around, um, and then Seattle's getting Russell Wilson back. So that, those are two more teams the Vikings are going to have to tangle with. Thankfully, we have the head-to-head over both of them. Um, but I am excited to see Cam back in the Carolina Blue. All right, let's change gears here now, and let's move to a team that doesn't disappoint us in the Minnesota Wild, at least not yet. And they, you know, the whole knock on them all season was, yeah, they, they win a lot of close games, but, you know, is it very is it a sustainable win model to always be coming from behind? And they say, well, all right, we have Arizona on the schedule. Let's just beat the brakes off of them. And they score five goals in two periods on national television. And all of it just basically screams. And I thought the Wild would regress a little bit this season, and maybe they still will. But at this rate, they're first in the Central, and I think one month into the regular season. I don't think I would have predicted that. Yeah, I would definitely have not. I mean, I thought, if anything, um, like I said, I think I predicted before the season, everybody was so excited about the Wild. It seemed like they were turning a corner last year, and I was like, let's not get too ahead of ourselves here, because when we did that with the Vikings in 2018, we're like, oh, well, we've got to be Super Bowl contenders now. We were last year, and we have a better quarterback. So I said, pump the brakes, don't get the expectations too high. Um, but at 9-3, 12 games through the season, like you said, first place in the Central I don't think there's anywhere this team is going to go, barring injuries, other than up. Like, this team, they're already gelling. Um, I think we finally found Kevin Fiala home on that second line um, with Felino and Eric Sinek. Um, that was a fantastic pairing last night. Um, I, I, I think this team is in for 
some more success. Now, granted, like you said, they've been winning close games, and that's. I don't think we can take too much from beating Arizona, who is absolutely awful this season. They've won one game so far uh, this year. They have three points. So I'm not going to take too much from that, but they've scored five goals in four straight games. The offense is clicking. Um, Cam Talbot's playing pretty well, uh, and Capo Catherine just had two pretty good games back-to-back against the Isles and uh, the Coyotes. So I'm really excited to see where this wild team can go. I think they're going to make the playoffs for sure. Um, Colorado is bound to get them themselves figured out. I think they have way too much talent to stay out of the playoff picture for long. And then once they get going, uh, it'll probably be a tighter race for the top. Um, but St. Louis looks pretty good, too, this year so far. So it'll be interesting to see when the Wild play them, how we stack up against uh, the Blues. And did you see that uh, Did you see that goal that Kaprizov got in the second period where him and I can't remember who he was playing with, but basically they just went back and forth with each other. I watched the goal about five times in a row. You just see the defense go back and forth and back and forth, and Kaprizov kind of lulls them to sleep and just sneaks it in right behind the pipe. And I, I don't know, man, Arizona, their their whole organization is a mess, top to bottom. Yeah, it was uh, Kaprizov and Zuccarello just playing keep away behind the net, and uh, the goalie was doing an absolutely terrible job of tracking the puck, and eventually there was enough space left, uh, and Kaprizov was able to figure that out and poke it into the net. It was a really good goal, and I liked uh, Kevin Fiala's goal last night, too. It was just a pretty goal. I mean, uh, when you see a little little tap in above the, above the shoulder where it's literally got to fit into a puck-sized hole uh, in the top corner. That was, that was nice to see. Um, and hopefully this win uh, can help motivate us to, to keep playing um, to the best of our abilities and maybe the defensive pairings can step it up a little bit. Maybe we won't have to come from behind in every single game. But um, it was nice to be leading from wire to wire pretty much the entire night um, last night. So, yeah, like I said, I'm really excited about this Wild team. Uh, it, it seems like the free stop is getting himself on the score sheet more and more. Uh, I think that was his third goal of the season now. So it, it's it's going to be really good uh, going forward. Hopefully we can get some of those some of those goal scorers even hotter going into, uh, into December, January. And we talked about this on the podcast already, but I, I think – you know, like you said, Kaprizov has three goals. I think they've all came in like the last week and a half or two weeks. And, you know, there was the talk at the beginning of the year where is he, you know, is he a bust or is he not playing up to expectations? And it was like, everybody calm down. Like just he'll figure it out. Everybody kind of goes through like a rough, you know, a couple weeks stretch. And then he turns it around. Now he's having a pretty good stretch. And when this team gets hot, when Kaprizov gets hot, the ceiling for this team rises exponentially and we're seeing it. And it's interesting to see. Uh, and when, you know, Zach Parisi being on, uh, the aisles on Sunday night, you know, they were up at the beginning of the third period, the wild scored four goals in the third. And I think it just, it was fitting that Parisi was there and Parisi wasn't the sole culprit of this, but he was one of the guys leading that charge. And I think it just goes to show that this locker room, this culture, everything about this team is completely different, even from when Parisi and Suter were there last year. But when he had guys, you know, the Zuckers and the Coils and the that just that whole old guard of players and just everything about this culture is different. I know there was an article at the beginning of the season in either the Star Tribune or the Pioneer Press basically talking about how Spurgeon and the, the two uh, assistant captains, they were just basically talking about how they wanted it to be a more open locker room, a locker room where everybody felt like they could come up and talk. There was no like hierarchies of bets and rookies and 
you know, whatever. They wanted to be a, kind of a kumbaya mentality. And Dean Evison was inter being interviewed by TNT last night and basically kind of gave that same thing where he wants everybody to be able to share and be able to talk in the locker room and basically just feels like a more cohesive unit. And I'm not saying that that leads, that's why they come from behind more. That's why they're outright winning more games. But the Wild have notoriously gone through low points in seasons where it looks like everything's about to fall apart. And when you have more locker room synergy like that, you know, I think culture and momentum and all that kind of stuff gets a little bit overplayed sometimes, and I've said that on the podcast, but at the same time, when they have a the, the culture that they're building, winning teams do have a good culture. There is no no doubt about it. And the Wild, I think, are building something with what Gurren and with what Evison want in that locker room, and I think the captains are doing a good job of that. I really think this team is just built to win, even if they're not the most talented team in the league on paper. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I think the culture is the main thing that I've noticed that's changed um, over the past two years, even. Um, and you could tell it kind of it was getting a little bit better last year, uh, but then getting getting Parisi out of the locker room, and, and I think, like you said, I saw that same uh, same report about what Evison said uh, last night after the game. Um, and just how everybody feels like they have an input. Everybody feels like their uh, their their information is valuable. Uh, you have to have a team that's cohesive and that can that can learn from each other and really play well together. Um, and I think that that um, having some of those vets that kind of want to make it about them and that they're the spiritual leader of the team. And you got to listen to me. Uh, that that's sometimes can be good for 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 a locker room to have those guys around, but you don't want them to take their role. Um, to a level um, that I think we were seeing in Minnesota. So, yeah, I do think that the, the culture, especially in St. Paul with that hockey team, is really good this year. I, I, have, I haven't been this excited about a, a Minnesota sports team. Like, I, I, I got excited about the Wolves preseason. I knew they wouldn't, like, do this, like what the Wild are doing. And I was like, oh, man, they're on the up and up. And now here we are, uh, three, and, three and seven after a three and one start. So, um, but that's that's a tale from another time. Um, but yeah, this this wild team seems to be building the right formula. Dean Evans doing a fantastic job, um, and really from the top down right now, it seems to be a well-oiled machine that's going to be making uh, hopefully very soon deep playoff runs. Yeah, and that's the thing is, you know, their, their backs were against the wall last off or last of playoff. So they were down three to one against Vegas, and the old wild teams would have died. But the, the locker room that Evison and they're all that they've all created, they came back and they didn't win the series, but they came back and they fought tooth and nail to take it to seven games and they made Vegas earn. And I think that that's something that, you know, the last Parisi suitor led teams and it's not all on them, but they were the faces of that team. You know, they just would have laid down and died and then they would have been like, oh, we're down three, one. All right. Well, my, you know, I have a golf tee off and you know, like two days that I want to make sure that I can make. And it's just been different this year, and it's been fun to see. With a team that's not really been fun to see, you just mentioned before, is the Minnesota Timberwolves. And about 30 minutes into both games, I was like, this is going to be a night where I'm just going to watch the Wild way more, and I'm going to kind of just peek in at the Wolves score every once in a while. And man, man, outside of Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns, this Timberwolves team is not good. The roster construction is terrible. And I know, like, if Gerson Rosas didn't get fired for 
you know, for being uh, inconspicuous or whatever word you want to use around the uh, around the workplace, he certainly would be on the hot seat right now for how bad this roster is and how bad this was put together. I'm, it's not good. And to put the cherry on top, Andrew Wiggins was dunking on top of Carl Anthony Towns, and that's about as low of a point as you can get. What were your thoughts on not only how the Wolves season has been going so far, but just getting completely embarrassed against Golden State last night? Well, I mean... The, the stuff that's really upset me is that we've looked at times like we can be a team that, that competes. Now, granted, the basketball game is 48 minutes. you got to play all the way through the end. But the other night against Memphis, I looked at my phone, and I saw we were up 14 with five and a half minutes to go in the game. And we ended up losing that game almost in regulation. And then we didn't score a point in overtime. And then a couple days before that, we led the Clippers by like 20 at one point, and we ended up losing by over 20 points. And it's it's losing like that that really just deflates um, any hype that the 3-1 and start had. Um, and hopefully somebody can come in here that can figure it out. Um, because Anthony Edwards and Carl A. Downs, we've already wasted enough of Cat's career. I hope that we don't have to do the same to hand, and I hope that this team can at least turn themselves around and be competitive. I'm not even asking for you to be a top three seed in the West year in and year out. I'm saying get to the freaking seventh seed. Get to the sixth seed every once in a minute. Like, just be competitive. Make us want to watch basketball for more than two weeks in the state of Minnesota. Yeah, and that's the thing is this team, there's a basketball culture in Minnesota that that the Wolves and the Gophers have yet. It's a very right mine. It's a very rich vein to tap into, and neither of them want to do it. They both refuse to do it. And they scored, and going back to that Clippers game, because I think it's really telling, they scored 27 points in the second half, the entire second half against the Clippers. Like you said, they completely shut down in the final five minutes against Memphis. And it's just things like that of this end-of-game situations and you can hear Anthony I the biggest thing about this season I've loved is Anthony Edwards post game interviews. He's a guy who's finally, you know, and he's not the first guy to point out that the Wolves have had, you know, the Wolves are a bad organization. And he's not saying it directly. I don't even think he's saying he knows he's saying that, but he's trying to change things. And that's way too much for a 20-year-old Anthony Edwards to do. But they got to figure out something because the Wolves have the highest three-point volume in the league, but one of the worst three-point percentages. There's nobody that can attack the rim outside of Anthony Edwards. Everything about this team, the, the whole team chalks up to, can the Wolves make a three tonight? They can't? Well, the, well, the game's over. And that's the worst part about this Timberwolves team, is they can be fun to watch. There are likable players on this team. And I saw a tweet last week that I think is very telling, which is everybody, everybody has a... All the favorite players on the Minnesota Timberwolves team are beloved until they actually have to watch them play basketball. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I've been watching the Wolves, you know, even back to when I would watch them more often. I'm like, oh, you know, dang, that guy left the team. Like, I really enjoyed watching him here. Um, but I figured out quickly that I didn't really enjoy watching him uh, because he wasn't really that good. Uh, he just looked like he was good because he was like the third best player on our team, but that's only because we had terrible players. Um, and some of these guys, man, like you said, the roster construction 
it's not that good. I, I think we struggle with shooting at times, uh, which is ever increasingly more and more important. Um, except this year, I think that been so bad and i think this is people are now i think the fan for whatever reason and i know twitter's not real life but the twitter wolves fans the the wolves twitter is starting to turn on carl anthony towns not so much as that they're saying he sucks or that you know he's bad or that he you know that they don't like him i think the vikings or that excuse me the wolves are turning on cat being the leader of this team and being the face of the franchise and i think there's a lot of people now that are starting to say if we can get something for Cat, let's build around Anthony Edwards instead. Are you okay? Are Are you on the train of let's get rid of Cat and start to get pieces around Ant, or are you thinking that Cat and Ant can work together on the same team? I think they can absolutely work together on the same team, and I think that that should be the first thing we try to do. We've only really had them together for like not even a full eighty-two game slate yet. So I wouldn't necessarily turn on Cat just because you have one really good player. You know, now Cat is kind of the old, he's the old Cat on the block, you know. And uh, so everybody's like, oh, well, we're going to build around this new guy. He's younger. He's he's honestly, I think, got a higher ceiling than Cat, especially because he plays a position that can, especially in today's NBA, better take over a game. Um and I, I think that I think that Cat is like the perfect kind of guy to build around Ant with, though. Like, you want a guy like that. Like, that's the I, I'll say a, a Simmons and Embiid kind of pairing. Um, obviously, Ant and Simmons are very different players, but but Cat kind of can play that number two eventually um, to Anthony Edwards and and really complement his game well um, with spacing and stuff like that, especially with how good Cat has become from behind the three-point arc. Uh, so I, I think that definitely you got to try to make it work with both of them uh, because that's going to be a lot better than um, trying to just get rid of Cat just because he's, he's kind of old news. Yeah, I think that that's the route to go. I think you have to build around both of them. And honestly, I think Carl Anthony Towns is like the one – star in the NBA, not superstar, but one star player in the NBA that would actually be okay giving Ant the front and center stage. Like Carl Anthony Townsend, not a number two, but like a 1B. I think Carl Anthony Towns would be okay with that. I don't think Carl Anthony Towns needs to be the face. He doesn't need to be that. And I don't think Edwards needs to be either, but I think Edwards is better of taking on the guy who is the first one to answer after games, who's the guy that everybody looks to. I think Carl's okay with getting 30 points a game and just kind of going home and not that, you know, and that's not a knock on him. That's just who Carl Anthony Towns is. He never was a raw, raw guy. He never was this guy that a lot of people wanted him to be. So yeah, I think it'd be okay to pair those two together. I don't think you need to trade Towns. I just think you need to re-examine how this roster is. And I've always said it's not D'Lo, Ant, and Cat. It's Cat and Ant with D'Lo. And honestly, if you want to get rid of D'Angelo Russell, I am more than okay with that. I think he's been overrated since the time he's been here, but 
I mean, there's you got to do something with this Wolves team, and I wouldn't be surprised if after how bad this team plays, if Laurie and Rodriguez, if they and they're not full owners yet, Glenn Taylor still will be for like another year. I mean, if I'm them though, I'm chirping in Glenn Taylor's ear to say let's let's bring in a new guy to run the basketball operations, even if the even if uh you know Sanchez Gupta is the guy and who's a, a smart guy, it, it still might not be time. You might need to bring in somebody to to rebuild this thing and build around Catnan. But last thing I want to touch you with here, and then we'll uh, let you go. I got two things for you. One, give me your one statement on the, the Gopher program right now after a terrible loss to Illinois. And uh, then I want you to give me a uh, Loon's playoff preview. Oh, man. I mean, the Gophers, they, they let me down really badly. I mean, I'm thinking this is – even probably a better shot to win the West than when we were 9-0 after beating Penn State um, because that season Iowa and Wisconsin were a lot better than they are now. Now, granted, if we went out, we still win the West. We still control our own destiny. But this is such a gut-wrenching blow to lose to Illinois at home while only scoring six offensive points the entire game. I, I just think that, that that hurts. And Wisconsin now, or I'm sorry, Iowa now, um, they're going to come in. They're going to smell blood in the water, and it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough because they're, they've struggled, yes, but we've struggled too. And if we don't get out on the front foot offensively in this game, we when we fall behind, that's when it really starts to hurt, especially because, I man, I don't think Tanner Morgan is it. I think he benefited. Um, very greatly from having three really good wide receivers on his roster um, back in 2019 with Tyler Johnson, Rashad Bateman, and Chris Ottenbell. Uh, and now he only has Ottenbell, and the play calling cannot get it done. Um, they just, I, uh, it's very frustrating to watch the offense. The defense is still really good. Um, so I do think there's a chance they win the West. I think they could get to Indy. I'm still behind the team, uh, but last week really pained me to sit there and watch that. Uh, I just I thought there was a lot more in store for this team, and I didn't think that Illinois was going to be the team that took it away from us. Um, Brent Bielema yeah, just proves that he owns. Uh, he he should honestly get partial ownership of TCF Bank or Huntington Bank Stadium. That dude, whether it's Wisconsin or Illinois, he just owns the Gophers. Yeah, I, I, it was very tough to watch, especially the offensive side of the ball. Not being able to move it the entire game, the entire game was was very, very frustrating. Hopefully they can rebound uh, and bring back the Floyd of Rosedale to the state of Minnesota. Yeah, I, we'll have to see. It's going to be a tough one. But if P.J. Fleck can beat Iowa, even if they don't make the Big Ten championship game, just beating Iowa will regain a lot of that credibility for the first time in his career, by the way. So last thing. Quickly, just give me your Loons playoff preview. What are you looking forward to? Well, I enjoy that the, the decision day, uh, MLS decision day, that was exciting to watch. Uh, the game against L.A. took it right down to the wire. There's a lot of drama, especially at the end of the game. Um, uh, Real Salt Lake scored a literal last-minute goal to punch their ticket into the MLS playoffs. And at the time, our game was tied at 3-3. So if we would have fallen behind, we would have missed the playoffs. Uh, and if L.A. Uh, couldn't get a goal, they were going to miss the playoffs. So it's funny, the state of uh, the two states in the U.S. that probably have the most soccer talent, California and Texas, the six teams that missed the playoffs in the Western Conference, 
uh, are both are all from uh, the states of California and Texas, Austin, Dallas, and Houston, and then the two LA teams and San Jose. Uh, but Minnesota has a good matchup against Portland. I don't think we've lost to Portland in like four years. Um, uh, even though we got to go to uh, play in front of the Timbers Army, I, I think we can win this game. Uh, we're, we're a good enough team when we're clicking on all cylinders, and it's the only team, uh, two team, only two teams now, Minnesota being one of them, have made the playoffs uh, in Major League Soccer after starting 0-4. Uh, and being the five seed, I think it's going to be tough because uh, – if we win this game, which I think we can, the toughest part is going to be going to Colorado with only four days in between games. Uh, to the 21st, playing against Portland, and then playing in four days against Colorado, who will be plenty well-rested. I think the MLS has some explaining to do on, on their hands. Uh, when If you look at the Eastern Conference's 4-5 matchup, and then they get nine days before they have to play one seed in New England, I, I don't understand what the formatting is here. I'm a little bit confused about why there's, you know, four, only four days uh, rest for our team to get to play against Colorado. But hopefully Heath can rotate this uh, team well enough that if they beat Portland, they can compete against Colorado. And uh, hopefully we can get back to the conference finals and MLS Cup. And let's see how far this team can go this year. Scarves up, baby. Scarves up. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm excited. I think we have a really exciting player with Emmanuel Reynoso, um, who should have taken a penalty. That's another thing I forgot to mention. We missed a penalty kick in like the 90th minute that would have ensured us, you know, passage through easily. Um, and it made it the end of that L.A. game a lot more stressful than it probably needed to be for Loons fans. But uh, Emmanuel Reynoso is the perfect number 10 for this team. Uh, he's a really good passer of the football, or I'm sorry, the soccer ball. Um, that was a little bit of my European side coming on. Get that out of here. Get that European stuff out of here. Uh, and I'm used to saying football, especially with it being swing of the NFL and college football seasons. But uh, it should be exciting to watch. That game is on November 21st, 4.30 on ESPN. I believe it's a Sunday. So probably have that on my second monitor as I'm watching uh, football on the first. But it'll be exciting to see Minnesota teams in the playoffs. Uh, how often can that disappoint you, you know? So sooner or later, one of them is bound to, bound to pull through, right? You know, we say that, and, you know, to mixed results, I would say. So I I don't know. But yeah, thank you very much, Ian, for that uh, soccer take there. And uh, thanks again for joining on the podcast, for uh, giving out all the Minnesota sports uh, takes we got here. We covered a lot today, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, anytime you want me on, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm always free uh, to come on help out. All right. Well, Ian, our frequent guest here on the podcast, love having you on. And uh, we'll chat at you again, and we'll be back here tomorrow for another podcast here on the Minnesota Sports Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star review and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word.